Welcome to How We Got Here, a podcast between FKG Consulting and Nondoc Media. I'm Trace Savage, the editor-in-chief of Nondoc.com and the uh, apparent host of this podcast. Uh, I'm here with three fine gentlemen, uh, Brian Freed and Spencer Gwynn of FKG Consulting. Gentlemen. Hey, Trace. Hey, how are you? Good. I'm glad to be here. We're done with the Capitol. I've seen you too much this week, and I want to finish this podcast and not see you anymore for the weekend exactly um i'm sure you feel similar and we have a guest here with us uh who's also somebody we've seen at the capitol um although not too much uh never get too much nico gomez um current uh director of the uh now you're gonna have to tell me the new name of your organization yeah we rebranded we're care providers oklahoma and we are effectively the trade association uh, supporting nursing homes assisted livings and institutions uh, with, that helps individuals with developmental disabilities. A lot of really, really important uh, uh, entities and institutions across the state, from from the Panhandle to uh, uh, Idabel, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we actually have in our membership uh, over 200 members and uh, all across the state of Oklahoma, and uh, both urban and rural, and both have a lot of challenges trying to take care of our seniors, individuals with disabilities. I think that if we, if we polled the public right now, uh, couple of the most important issues facing uh, them or that they're concerned about politically uh, would be uh, the state economy, the budget, uh, and then uh, education. But a, a close third, I think, would be health care. Um, if you're in rural Oklahoma, you've seen access to health care um, improve in some small ways and then also be hurt by the closure of rural hospitals, the closure of certain nursing homes, um, decreases in, in Medicaid provider rates, all sorts of things. Uh, and, and and so we wanted to take this podcast to look at how we got to this point uh, in Oklahoma healthcare. And in your previous role, uh, you were the head of the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority for about four years. For about four years, yeah. And before that, you were the sort of the legislative liaison for. Yeah, I was deputy director for a number of years, and had you know in that in those roles, when you're a state employee, you actually have a lot of different hats and. And so I had, you know, several hats. One of those is I dealt help with, you know, policy and legislative issues at the Healthcare Authority. I was there since 2000, uh, and then prior to that, I wasn't in healthcare. But so I've been in healthcare roughly for the last, you know, uh, 18 years, and have enjoyed it thoroughly. Where do you guys see uh, the current state of Oklahoma healthcare? The current biggest issue f- uh, facing us, and then we'll kind of work backwards uh, into Nico's uh, uh, past. What do you guys think? Where, where do we want to start? Well, I think one of the big issues that we've been faced with in Oklahoma for a number of years now is because the economy has, has, has not been doing well, uh, the, we've had so many budget cuts. And providers across the state of Oklahoma, whether they're nursing homes or hospitals or, or physicians, whomever, whomever they are, uh, have had to essentially take less for doing the same job. And I think that that puts a lot of pressure and strain on the system. Uh, in, the, in, in the nursing homes, we've had a, a lot of nursing homes, uh, because I know Nico can rattle off these stats, but nursing homes across the state of Oklahoma are, are a little unique from the standpoint that Medicaid, and I think we'll talk about what Medicaid even is, let Nico address that, but Medicaid uh, is uh, about 70% of all of the uh, uh, residents that reside in nursing homes are, are uh, Medicaid recipients. And that is uh, makes it very difficult when uh, the state is who decides how much they're going to pay for our Medicaid rate when you've had multiple cuts through the years, and it's created a lot of home closures across the state of Oklahoma and put a lot of pressure on the, on the health care system. So to give our overview, anybody who ever is friends with me or I used to work in health care myself, 
and uh, I, I used to bore people at the bar um, talking about uh, F maps and uh, things like that. Uh, Medicaid and Medicare are the two uh, public uh, health uh, insurance programs in the United States. Medicare is for uh, senior citizens 65 and above, and Medicaid is sort of a federal state partnership program primarily for children, uh, pregnant mothers, and low-income adults and disabled folks. Let me, let me correct you on, on that low-income low adults, because I think that's the misnomer that, we, that really challenges us when we're talking about Medicaid. It is kids. Uh, they make up the largest uh, percentage of our Medicaid population, about 60, I think 65% are kids, and we call it Sooner Care in Oklahoma, and about 35% are adults. But when we talk about that adult population, we're talking about uh, individuals with disabilities and seniors. And then you do have the pregnant moms, which I kind of put them in the kind of that kids side of that, of that category, um, because really what we're, it's, you know, we're only providing care because that mom is pregnant. We're not providing care because you know, you know, for any other reason, unless she happens to be disabled. And so, you know, we, when we talk about health care in the state of Oklahoma, and we hear this often, you know, all our poor health outcomes, all our poor health rankings, and what are we doing to address it? Well, people think Medicaid helps with that. It really doesn't, because for the most part, when you look at our health rankings, whether it's cancer, obesity, which is something I deal with, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, uh, tobacco-related diseases, those are all disease states that, that create our poor rankings, and those impact really those Oklahomans 19 to 64, which are not covered in Medicaid. Unless, yeah, so you're, you're going to bait me into my favorite stat, which is most, most people do think that, that low-income adults are covered. In reality, they are covered if they have children, and they are up to 37% of the federal poverty level. So we actually, by not having a more robust safety net in that regard some people have to get in that realm of uh do i work more and make more money and then lose my medicaid sooner care etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's that's one of my favorite little tidbits i didn't know you were gonna um get right to that off the off the start uh, but that is a big challenge with with uh, oklahoma's medicare Med medicaid system yeah and i think you know you know how did we get here i mean one of the things that we're always faced with this challenge is you know the funding piece of it but it's also, you know, the public health outcomes. You know, people obviously, as taxpayers, as as people who, who pay for policies, we want to see better health outcomes, uh, but we don't want to necessarily pay a lot for it. And so it, that's always that balance that we have in Oklahoma. But you mentioned it earlier, you talk about uh, Medicaid and Medicare. When you talk about Medicaid and you talk about Blue Cross Blue Shield, and I, when I see Blue Cross Blue Shield's largest in, private insurer in the state of Oklahoma, and you look at those two programs them, by themselves, they cover over half the, the population uh, as insurance, and then the rest are, are, have some other insurance, and there's a good chunk, you know, a good, what, 600, 700,000 people who have no insurance. And those are all the, healthcare is one of the most, and you know, we just got started in this conversation, and we're just kind of going all over the map here, Healthcare is one of the most complicated things from a health policy standpoint that we deal with at the legislature, and that that you know because it, it creates these these it creates a lot of issues just by the fact that you can't simplify it very easily. And and I think it, it also uh, adds. Uh, I would also add that it has such an impact on the on the state budget because uh, people under law are eligible for Medicaid services. That doesn't mean that they have enrolled. It doesn't mean that they're receiving those. And as as the state is is not doing well, as as the economy turns towards the downside, 
and that hurts with our state tax collections and everything else the, there is a there's a an opposite impact on uh, the Medicaid population. Typically, when that happens, more people are enrolling in Medicaid because uh, the, the economy's not doing well. So you have the budget going down, and then at the same time, you have the Medicaid population going up, which creates a bigger funding problem from the state of Oklahoma's perspective. And it's and this is even more complicated. If I could roll it back, that would be the theme of this episode, is because not only you have that, you have the economy goes bad, people lose jobs, they're more eligible for Medicaid, potentially. But then you have the federal-state match, which is affected. Uh, and when the Oklahoma economy does better every number of years, Nico, I don't know how many, yeah. the, the federal match, the percentage, is adjusted. So as Oklahoma's economy has done well over the last, or you know, uh, maybe five to ten years ago, was, was getting better, um, Actually, we were losing the amount of money we were coming in, getting from the feds, and we were having to appropriate more state dollars to provide the same Medicaid services. Yeah, I think I, I'm sorry, Nico. Uh, first, probably explain what FMAP means and what the matching rate really means. Yeah, and let me let me take one. So let me reset it there because I want to say, you know, so who are we talking about covered in Medicaid? It, it's kids, pregnant moms, uh, individual disabilities, and seniors. But you also have to be low income. And so that's an important part of it. It's not just anybody who meets those categories. You have to meet a, a family income threshold. And we're talking about uh, Oklahoma being a very conservative state. It's a very low income threshold. Then whenever somebody qualifies, it is a, as Trace said earlier, it is a state and federal partnership. So the state puts up so much money and the federal government uh, matches it. Now, that match rate that the federal government provides is based upon the state's economy compared to other states. And you can get in the weeds on this real quick, but it's based on a three-year rolling average of the state's per capita income compared to other states. To your point, we have done very well over the last you know 10 years, actually longer than that when you're comparing uh, us to other states. And as a result, our, we have lost a federal match. It wasn't because of anything we did uh, matter of fact, it's probably because we actually did some really good things from an economic standpoint. Um, but unfortunately, we still had a high number of people in poverty who relied on uh, sooner care Medicaid services. And that when you have less federal funds and you didn't, you know, you didn't really lose anybody that you're covering, that put a lot of pressure on that state dollar. So in other words, the, ba the way the FMAP works is, is that uh, they, the the center the CMS uh, the federal Medicaid basically agency uh, looks at all of the states and they do a comparison and decide how is your state doing uh, as far as the rest of the nation is going and they determine uh, the worse your economy is doing the the federal government's going to contribute more uh, uh, and 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 vice versa so in other words if uh, there, there it wasn't long ago in which uh, the traditional matching rate in Oklahoma was for every dollar the state of Oklahoma would put in the federal government would essentially match yeah. that uh, uh, it was a 70-30 match, 70% uh, 70, 70, uh, of that would come from the federal government. How, what's that look like today? What, what's happened as it relates to that matching rate? Yeah, when I started, that, that matching rate was closer to that 70-30, and, and I look back about you know 10 years ago um, when we started to have some issues with our own state's economy, um, but the federal you know, match rate wasn't, was, was actually going down. So it added this added stress to the safety net. Um, you know, we were about 68%. So we dropped a few points, 
you know, in, in from 2000 to 2008, 2009, but from 2009 to really this to, to last October, um, we dropped another 10 points. So over that time, let's just say over the last 10 years, we dropped 10 points. So for example, you know, you take a dollar, um, 10 years ago, 68 cents of that dollar we spent on health care was paid for by the federal government. Your federal taxpayer dollars went to go match that. Now, today, we take that same dollar and we go buy health care on behalf of somebody in Sooner Care, and we're only getting 58 cents from the federal government. Um, and so the cost of health care has gone up. Uh, the number of people that, were, that qualify, this is an entitlement program, the number of people who qualify has not gone down. And so it's created a lot of stress on the state budget. So what, what NICO is, uh, what does something like that for, for our listeners, what, what would that translate in estimate into hard dollars? You, you talk about that 68% to 58%. Uh, percent. Yeah, you know, when I was at the Healthcare Authority, each point um, that the uh, federal matching rate would drop, it, it usually means about a $50 million loss in federal funds. So if you go back to, you know, 10 years ago when we were at 68% and now we're at 58%, roughly that's as annual that's an annualized number of about $500 million, half a billion dollars. Wow, I can even do that math. Uh, Spencer, you've been sitting here and, and kind of soaking this in. Where do you come from? Where do you see uh, the, the current state of health care and, and the issues at hand? Uh, what, well, what actually, you? I wanted to ask Nico one other question before, before we get into that, which is to talk about the state's contribution um, during those time frames when uh, the, 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 the federal match is, is, is lowered. Does that require then the legislature to come in and appropriate more money? Or how does the healthcare authority handle that, or does that get into the politics really yeah, no, of that, running the health? That's a great authority. question because what's really happened over the last ten years is uh, you've seen a combination of two things: the the state has had to put more state dollars up to cover the loss of which federal takes funds. away from other which takes away yeah from which takes programs. away from education which takes away from corrections because we are talking about an entitlement program. But the, on the flip side, the state doesn't have enough money to cover all those gaps and and just the cost increase of health care and so what we what we saw over the last 10 years is there are there are really three buckets three levers in which you can impact how much your Medicaid system costs you can limit how many people you cover which Oklahoma is really at the I would say near the federal limit of what you have to cover and still qualify for federal funds so you really can't reduce the number of people I mean you can't really reduce any of those categories that we cover today you can change the benefits. Now, there are optional benefits in Medicaid. One of those is prescription drugs. We can say, state of Oklahoma can say, we're no longer going to cover prescription drugs in Sooner Care. Well, yeah, that might save you some money on the front end, but it's actually going to cost you more in the long run because what that means is people aren't going to get their medications. It's going to turn into hospital stays. Hospitals are a mandated benefit, and so that really doesn't save any money. So the optional benefits are really nothing optional there for the state to cut. Um, you know, we, I remember a few years ago when I was at the healthcare authority, we had to cut adult dental for pregnant women. That made zero public health sense, but we had to do it from a budgetary standpoint in order to balance the budget, but from a public health sense. So, so then, the, so really the bulk of the cuts over the last 10 years were borne by the healthcare providers who are providing care to those seniors, those individuals with disabilities. So those nursing homes, those hospitals, those physicians, those pharmacies, those home health, you go through the healthcare list, all of them have taken significant cuts over the last 10 years at a time when their costs are going up. 
And that's usually when the legislature starts to begin the conversation around, do we have a spending problem or do we have a revenue problem? And the, the issues that we've been dealing with over the last few years, I would say probably, what, three or four um, around identifying, is this a spending problem or is it a revenue problem, come back up and we have talks of, of increase in taxation and so on and so forth. What's your take? Uh, spending problem, revenue problem, or what's the? Uh, we we've been talking a little bit about uh, 2018 elections. Uh, some people are saying we just need to audit the Medicaid agency and we'll find all these people who shouldn't qualify and and then we'll save all this money that way. What what's your take? Yeah, you know we we've we've looked at that, or I've looked at when I was at the Healthcare Authority. I haven't obviously spent that much time on the last year and a half that I've been away from it. Look, there's always, anytime you're dealing with a system as large as Medicaid, are you going to be able to go out there and find people who are cheating the system? Absolutely you are. Absolutely you are. How much is it going to cost for you to go out there and find that percentage? And then how many safeguards can you put in place to make sure it doesn't happen? And I, I think the state of Oklahoma has done a good job to do that uh, compared to other states. Um, I was proud of the fact that we had one of the lowest payment error rates in the country, which means that, and, and look, there were auditors that lived at the health care authority, whether they were state, federal auditors, nearly every day of every, of every week. And so I, I was always one when I was at the health care authority, hey, if you want to bring an audit in, bring an audit in, let's go. Because, I, you know, the, most of the time, Everybody wants to fix a problem if they if the, if there one exists, but you know you have to you have to do spend money to go find that. I would rather spend money on the front end and go. Um, let's invest in preventive services. Let's invest in in what really matters to make sure that we actually have healthier outcomes and and really start to drive the economy. And that, that that's probably a different question you want to get into. Though. Well, well, that was sort of the point of of when the Affordable Care Act passed in in two thousand nine. Um, you know. Part of the point was to try to decrease the the uh, number of uninsured people across the country, uh, expanding Medicaid, uh, which was a temporary 100% federal match for, for states to expand it to be more low-income adults. Um, that that was sort of the point of that was that that was the the way that you could really lower Medicare costs, end-of-life costs, by having people be healthier. There, people have heard me say before that. Uh, if you're uninsured from, if you roll off of Sooner Care at 18, and so from 19 to 64, you're occasionally insured at work or whatever, but you're largely uninsured. By the time you're 65 and Medicare eligible, you're a giant walking bag of disease. Uh, you're, you're probably not very healthy because you haven't had good primary care access, et cetera, et cetera. And so then you get into what I would call, um, you know, sort of the, the, the end of your life care and you're more expensive. Uh, if, you, if you are diabetic and you have to have a, an amputation, um, not only is that very costly to perform, uh, but then you're actually Medicaid eligible because you're now disabled. So there's all sorts of uh, you know, ironies or, or sort of vicious cycles in this process. If people are uninsured, uh, then they become more costly in the long run. And meanwhile, hospitals and nursing homes are trying to take care of them to the best of their ability. Nico, how many, uh, I've heard some statistics thrown around before, how many births in the uh, state of Oklahoma, roughly what percentage are, are paid for by Medicaid? Yeah, it's about 60% of all the babies delivered are funded by Sooner Care. About 70% of every nursing home bed is funded by Sooner Care. You know, there's a, there's a good chance about, you know, I think there's about a million kids 
age 18 and younger in the state of Oklahoma at any given time. And, you know, you could have easily five or 600,000 kids on um, sooner care. So, I mean, it is a lot of our population. And we don't really think about it um, because the health care, you don't think about it until you need it. You talk about uh, nursing homes and, and getting a Medicaid uh, reimbursement rate from the state of Oklahoma. What does that roughly, just for the listeners that have no idea, what does that roughly uh, translate into, like, per day? It's, it's around $140 a day. Uh, but it's, it's not like when you go to a hotel and you check into a hotel and you're maybe paying $150, $200 a night. This is $140 a day uh, to a home that's got to provide 24-hour uh, high-acute medical care, uh, making sure that, you know, that the, the physical needs are met, the medical needs are met of every resident. Um, and it's a highly regulated industry. Um, and it's, 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 it's a tough one. But, I, you know, what I've loved about learning more about our nursing home care in the state of Oklahoma is that there's, there's this misnomer about, you know, this picture of this greedy villain was sitting over there on this pot of money and, you know, the, the, the greedy nursing home owner. What I've learned is uh, these people are very, very invested in the health and well-being of their residents and their health and well-being of their staff. And, um, you know, when somebody passes away, they're, a lot of times their family um, they, they weep with them. They, you know, it's, this is a, it's a tough, tough business. Um, and it's, it's tough because we rely on, uh, really the state and federal government to be able to help take care of people who no longer have the money to take care of themselves. Trace, you, you mentioned earlier the Affordable Care Act, uh, that is sometimes referred to as Obamacare, but I dun, think what's done, <laughs> I think what is, uh, uh, Nico is uniquely positioned that he was at the healthcare authority during that period of time. How did you navigate the politics in a state that clearly resisted. rejected and yeah. resisted, uh, expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act? And I know that was a a tough, tough, uh, tightrope to try to walk. Uh, how, how did, how did, what, what kind of pressures did you have? What, you know, on both sides I mean, you had people telling you, you know, uh, on, on the Democrat side, that was a big political fight for a number of years to expand Medicaid. And, uh, anyway, well, you know, one thing people forget is we've always had the authority in the state of Oklahoma to expand Medicaid. Um, and we actually did it with a program called Insure Oklahoma. It wasn't the, you know, 100% federally funded program, but it was one where uh, we actually passed a tobacco tax in 2004 that that funded a program that said, "Hey, here is a way for you to help. We're gonna the state and the federal government's gonna help you through the Medicaid program, pay for your health insurance premiums." I would have loved for that program to just to blossom out. It didn't take off the way I'd hoped and wanted to. Um, for those of us at the healthcare authority at the time, but it is an option for those who the, the, we mentioned earlier, those 19 to 64 who are working Oklahomans uh, to have some affordable health care. Uh, so, you know, Medicaid expansion became a very toxic thing. Uh, but for with, when you're at the one of the deals that we deal with, and we talk about poor health outcomes, it comes back to our health status and our ability to be able to provide access to care for for Oklahomans and for, for, for two reasons. Number one, to improve our health status, but then also help making sure that um, our healthcare providers stay in business so they can take care of you when you're sick, when you do need it, um, and hopefully help you when, you when you can take some preventive care. So if, if you don't have anybody covered, uh, there's not a, the hospital's not going to be able to stay open, the nursing home's not going to be able to stay open because nobody's going to be able to pay for it. And so what this issue really came down to is how can you 
increase the number of people who have access to health care insurance and how can you uh, help put in place a way to pay for it? People have heard me say before, payment drives provision, that if, if you, the other three of you are providers, if you're medical doctors, and I have uh, pretty good health insurance and Bryce, our technician, is uninsured, uh, I'm going to be an intriguing patient for you guys to recruit into your practice. Bryce is not. You're not going to want to take on a lower income guy who doesn't have health insurance. You're not going to say, okay, I want to deal with his hypertension. I want to deal with maybe the depression he's dealing with. I want to do all that. Me, if I have good Blue Cross Blue Shield coverage or, or Sooner Care or whatever, hey, okay, I'll take him on. I'll deal with these conditions and I'll help make him better because I know I'm going to get steady reimbursement with it. Right. So on that end, payment inherently drives provision. The, the thing that always stuck out to me with this was it was a very political issue. Nobody wanted to touch it uh, because of that. There were Republican-run states across the country, Arizona, Ohio, uh, other states that, that did uh, do Medicaid expansion. But the reality was I felt like that the politicians didn't it wanted to be a non-starter. But the people like Nico and people in public health uh, and, and healthcare organizations and hospitals and, and all those sorts of things who were really in the weeds of this complicated issue thought this is our best chance to, to make a dent in these poor health outcomes that we talk a lot about. Am, am I wrong in that? I, th I think a well, lot of the industries really wanted to do it. I think it goes back to a good question. I, I think uh, Spencer or Brian may be a better position to answer this. You know, there was when I started around and with state government and, and always heard this phrase is, you know, good policy makes good politics. I'm curious, is that still the case? Um, and, and how does how does politics play into healthcare policy? You know, I, I think as it relates to this, well, I think good policy always good policy is always the, the objective. I think we're always dealing with good people in the legislature, but the politics and the policy don't always match up uh, for for what's best. I think as it relates to the Affordable Care Act, one of the complaints that that we heard in Oklahoma was the Obama administration had just come in to the White House. Um, they had control of both, um, uh, both, both bodies of, of Congress, and there really wasn't a bipartisan agreement in order to, uh, to get the Obamacare um, provisions passed. Well, how does that affect, um, how does that affect us in, in the state of Oklahoma when, when there isn't a bipartisan agreement along those lines with something that is that significant uh, the implementers, which was the Oklahoma Health Care Authority in many situations, um, weren't willing to go down some of those paths, i.e. The, the, uh, the expansion. Well, and you weren't going to come out if the governor, if the governor Wasn't of the state to go down didn't, want to, didn't want to do it. You weren't going to come out and just criticize her and say, hey, no, we should do this. Right? And the legislature didn't want to go down that path. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, we, and we actually... One of these conversations that we're having at state capitol now is about boards and commissions of state agencies. And the Healthcare Authority Board is a seven-member board, two appointees by the Speaker Pro Tem, two appointees, uh, I mean, Speaker of the, of the House, uh, two by the uh, Pro Tem of the Senate, and three by the Governor. And uh, you know, I think they rotate every four years. And so you had a very a unique board, but even as a director of a state agency, even though I had a board that hired and fired me, I wasn't going to go down the street and say, hey, this is a great policy. We need to go do it when the politics were nowhere near 
what that was going to happen because right. uh, it would have been a very short stay for me in that position just because there was there was absolutely no political will to do it. And you talked about, Spencer, the agreement, that there wasn't a bipartisan agreement. <clears throat> the, the thing that I think gets, gets missed uh, a lot in the sort of legislative discussion, and, and I have another thought on this too, but is that, is that there was an agreement from a lot of the health care players at the federal level. You guys are lobbyists. If you were congressional lobbyists, you would have been lobbying on behalf of your clients uh, in that in that sure, agreement. Sure. The American Hospital Association, for one example, uh, agreed to and signed off on parts of the ACA that included uh, major Medicare cuts, end-of-life care, uh, sort of death care industry, uh, uh, kind of end-of-life palliative care cuts. And in doing that, they did that with the agreement that, okay, well, we're going to, Medicaid expansion is part of this, and all of the sort of, uh, you know, 18 to 64 folks who we see uninsured anyway, you get hit by a car, they come to our hospital, we have to treat them by federal law, we write that off as debt. Well, we're going to see Medicaid expansion, so that's going to help even out that bottom line. But, but the piece they didn't take into account were the folks who were there to implement within within each state. Right. And well, I think well that's, but, that's well, the, the piece I'm talking about. But when it right, but when it passed, when the Affordable Care Act passed, it was not optional. Yeah, it, was, it was a mandate. It yeah. was a mandate. Right, and sure. so when the US Supreme Court said uh, this is optional, yeah. that the the hospitals were left going, wait, wait, wait. Right. We 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 signed off on this major overhaul of the healthcare system because and this changed. was the agreement, and now right. it's optional yeah. politically. Right. In, in addition to that, I think you have the same thing with the uh, insurance industry, uh, where you know essentially there was an agreement to do away with pre-existing conditions. Uh, and then in the you know the thought process is that since there's going to be a bigger pie here, uh, then there was a way to do it. Well, the, what ended up happening on the politics of this is that as Spencer uh, talked about, you know, you had this. Uh, uh, law that went into effect and it was done so where there was really no Republican buy-in to it and and there the, but the assumption was well uh, they're gonna have to deal with it well what they didn't take into account were states going and suing and taking it to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court it was a very uh, elaborate and intricate uh, puzzle that went put together and then when the Supreme Court uh, ruled the way they did major chunks of that puzzle, uh, puzzle uh, sorry, came, came out. And that is when the politics, I think, of this really, really, kicked, off. really yeah. kicked off. Because at that point in time, it made it really difficult for Republicans in states, uh, in a very conservative states like Oklahoma, because it became such a Obama versus Republican Party kind of effort. And so that was what people like Nico as policy people are trying to do the right thing. Uh, it's a just a very difficult situation to be put in uh, when the politics are so against uh, what the federal government is is wanting you to do and the politics in your state are so different. Well, and we're pretty sharp guys and we know a decent, I think Nico knows the most uh, about this issue here. But it, there's still a lot of the nuance of it that is, is you know, even beyond because we don't deal with this every day of our lives, right? Well, think about the legislature. Not, not only is it just difficult as a lawmaker to get up to speed, but with term limits, you have people who've been in the legislature two years, four years, six years, and they don't really know a ton about the way Medicaid and Sooner Care uh, uh, works. And so to come to them and say, okay, here's this whole... Uh, story that we're going to tell you in a 40-minute podcast 
now, now listen to me and vote this way and do this thing that may be politically problematic, it's, it's really hard to sell. Well, going to that conversation, you go back to what the an agency's role is, number one, they're not an elected position. And so ultimately, every state agency has to implement the policy that the policymakers at 23rd and Lincoln implement. And so my, the way I looked at it is if they're not going to authorize the agency to do Medicaid expansion, we're not going to do Medicaid expansion. Um, ultimately, the, the kids that were there, the, the pregnant moms, the adults, the seniors, with dis, seniors, individuals with disabilities, those were our responsibility. And that's, that's what we really focused on. And there are so many issues around health care. It's really hard to even unpack in a 40-minute podcast because you've got this issue of access. You've got this issue of quality of care. Uh, you got this, you know, how does this impact our, our public health statistics? Um, all these factors, and it's really hard for a legislator, to your point, to sit there and, and really understand all these implications. Because, you know, as Brian mentioned earlier, you take one piece out of that puzzle, you pull one, you know, thread out of that, that fabric, and a thing can come apart real easy. It's a very fragile thing, and I think we take for granted the economic impact that it has on the state of Oklahoma. We're talking billions and billions of dollars of health care being spent every year, and your largest payers are typically your government payers, whether it's VA, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and so we all these systems have to work and play together, and for us to even have access to health care, whether you live in Hollis, Oklahoma, or you live you know, here in Oklahoma City or Tulsa, it's, it's, it's a... It's a tough. It's a tough situation. I'd like to uh, probably switch gears a little bit and fast forward to you know present present day a little uh, a little bit, uh, Nico, and, and, and ask you to comment a little bit about uh, the cigarette tax. There's been an effort in Oklahoma over the last couple of years to try to pass a cigarette tax. Um, you know what 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 comments do you have about the cigarette tax and you know why uh, groups like like the healthcare coalition worked on those and, and things like that? Well, you know, cigarette tax is an interesting thing. Uh, you know, we had our last uh, cigarette tax increase in the state of Oklahoma back in two thousand and four, and it it did you know it it raised some money to do some really good things. It also helped um, our our prevention efforts also helped curb uh, utilization. And that's the design. Um, when you talk about a cigarette tax, you really want to do two things from a public health standpoint. You want to decrease utilization, and you want to, um, you know, pay for the cost of those who do choose to smoke because ultimately our our healthcare systems ends up paying for it. I I've told people before. I, I looked at cigarette taxes almost a use tax, um, where when you're talking about secondhand smoke that sometimes our kids have to deal with when you're talking about individuals with disabilities our, you know our adult members on sooner care a lot of them smoke um, and they've smoked a long time and so it ends up you know we ends up help paying for their care so cigarette taxes is something that i've been working on for a number of years I, we've been talking about it at a dollar fifty uh in an effort to try to curb uh you know utilization of the product um you know you go higher you know, if you or or make it illegal, I don't care. Um, there is a public health benefit um, from from making it more difficult to take up a really a bad habit. Um, but at the same time, I recognize we have, uh, have other public health issues that we're dealing with with obesity, but but um, and all those things. But it's focusing on cigarette tax because the science is well known that it's just one of those behaviors that it creates a lot of cost in our public health system. And so what we've done over the last few years is approach the legislature about a dollar fifty cigarette tax 
in a way to help number one uh, pay for all that loss in federal funds uh, that we experienced in the Medicaid program and help make sure that we have a uh, robust uh, system that can actually take care of people. It sounds like a win-win, right? That this is the sort of thing that would decrease smoking rates and tobacco usage which would help our public health outcomes and lower our health care costs. And then we would also get some revenue off of it to, to help shore up some of the budgets that have been cut in recent years, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it's a win-win that we can't get done as a state. Is that frustrating to you? Incredibly frustrating. I think I've, I've learned how much Im, impact and influence our, our, our tobacco companies have on this issue. And, and I think over the – really, I, 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 I probably was really naive about it. Um, I remember when most of you around the table and some of your listeners are going to remember, hey, I did something called Medicaid Rebalancing Act a few years ago. It was on the premise that we had a $1.50 cigarette tax in a way to help uh, pay the health care providers more uh, because of all the cuts that they've taken over the last 10 years. But and actually, it was also a way for us to... Um, expand coverage in the Insure Oklahoma program. It was going to draw down some of the quote-unquote Medicaid expansion dollars by sort of changing the the way we classified some patients and am I, am yeah, I getting I mean, this no, it right? Was, it was we were going to we were going to move the chip kids and pregnant moms around and put them into a really into the private market. Um, we were going to uh, look at uh, Insure Oklahoma making it more affordable, more accessible for more Oklahomans. Um, and you were going to be able to pay those who uh, provide Medicare, Medi- excuse me, Medicaid services um, a, a more appropriate reimbursement rate for the care they're providing. And you know, we did that dollar fifty, and, and uh, had a dollar fifty cigarette tax that was going to actually help pay for this. Um, and really, at the end of the day, I think the tobacco companies actually had a, a large impact on why that wasn't successful. Both sides of the aisle, one side of the aisle. Well, I think ultimately both sides of the aisle are impacted by that. Um, you know, I, I could go back and in my mind go, well, if, if this one person would have made this different decision, we might have got this done. But it's back to the kind of the conversation that I think you posed earlier about uh, policy versus politics. Yeah. And it's impossible to have these conversations without talking about the political aspects of it. And we've we spent some time in previous pods uh, you can go back and listen to in which we spent a lot of time talking about the politics around the cigarette tax. A, 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 a proposal that started off as a cigarette tax grew into uh, essentially the step-up plan that we saw this last time because of politics and because of the 75% threshold. Uh, the Democrats uh, realized they had some leverage and they wanted to add some other other taxes to, to this equation. So we were unable to just look at what Nico just talked about and look at let's just deal with the cigarette tax and try to improve outcomes. People get uh, sort of really firm in their positions on this too, is that you might be on the far one side of the aisle and say, absolutely no expansion of any state government program, and we don't want, we would never want to expand entitlement and blah, blah, blah. And then you might get on the other side and say, well, we want to do this, but we're not going to do audits and we're not going to do this, that, or the other, and we're going to stand firm over here. And the reality is that, you know, the public sort of expects people to kind of meet in the middle and find some governance. As work a small, it out. Yeah, work it out. Yeah. I, as a small aside, I'll give you an example of that. I don't want to, I'm not going to name names, but Nico, back when, when the original Medicaid expansion discussions were going on, I was working in healthcare and I was at a lot of those early meetings. And uh, I, threw, I threw out the notion or the, the suggestion of, uh, of a small copay 
for this newly eligible population. And the there was a group of people who were very passionate healthcare people who were very bright and everything, who were just absolutely against anything along those lines. And I could see where they were coming from, but I was also trying to point out that, well, you gotta understand where the people who have to vote on this are coming from. And you gotta give them something that they can come to the table with. But isn't that some of that just a sign of the times of where we are as it relates to our politics yeah. and how that's affecting our policy? I mean, everyone is, is pretty well in their own corner uh, these, the, these days. Um, they're not necessarily uh, just trying to develop bipartisan agreements, which was my point in talking about Obamacare. Um, and, I, and I think maybe we've evolved further into to to that type of a, of a situation that we see today. I mean, people are making decisions about where they maybe buy things uh, based upon the politics of a brand. Um, but politicians are making uh, decisions um, based upon similar types of uh, thought process. I think we're we all no, cornered we, up. We no longer trust each other. That, that's my point. Yeah, we're all cornered I, I, up. I mean, we're I, all I, in our I think, space. I think tr- it's really hard to come to those compromises when when you don't trust what what what's going on sure. um you know when we you could look at some activities around certain state agencies right now and and i could see where it really starts to erode the public trust and in, into what we're trying to accomplish and w- look one of the things is you, government's not going to solve this problem uh, it really is going to have to be the communities i mean we're going to have to really have an engagement with um not only just local healthcare people local faith-based communities local people who care about the people in their town and in their city and really have them come to the table about what kind of city, what kind of state do you want to live in? And then are you willing to pay for it? Yeah. And Step Up attempted to, uh, the folks in Step Up tried to to beat, to bridge that gap. Um, you know, and it, it is what it is. The 75% threshold became became the real issue there. And, and so I think this, you know, probably leads us, we always end these podcasts by going with a question that would be its own other podcast, right? But I kind of want to know, you know, if we all go around the table, where do we think we either need to go or can go? And those may be different answers. Uh, wh- where can we go or where would you like to see us go from here in the next, say, 12 months, 24 months of Oklahoma health care? Um, I asked the question, so I don't have to answer first. <laughs> well, I'll let Nico uh, <laughs> put him on the spot. Well, you know, where I'd like to see us go in the next, we, we're going to have to shore up our healthcare delivery system because if we don't have a, an adequate healthcare delivery system, especially in rural Oklahoma, uh, we're all going to suffer. Uh, because if a hospital closes down in rural Oklahoma, that means uh, people are having to come to Oklahoma City, and then it's going to be clogging up those emergency rooms. It's really just ineffective care, and really in some ways uh, inhumane. Uh, but when same, you say shore up, how do what do you specifically mean? Well, Funding? I, mean, I, I think we're going to have to. Re- I think we're going to have to look at a dollar fifty cigarette tax, uh, uh, you know, and line item it. You know. Stop doing this, you know, let's just put it in the general revenue fund and then trust us because people, we don't, we don't, we don't trust our politicians anymore. Our politicians don't trust, you know, the state agencies, the taxpayers don't trust anybody. And, and so I think what I'd like to see over the next year is us to be able to make some investments in our, in our infrastructure and in our public health infrastructure, not even public health. This, you have to remember 96% of everything that the Medicaid program pays for goes out and pays uh, those private hospitals, those private nursing homes, those it, it really is that public-private partnership. We're going to have to shore up our healthcare delivery system. Otherwise, 
uh, we're not going to be able to take care of that next generation of Oklahomans. One of the things I always said around healthcare is healthy learners, healthy earners. This is all tied. This, you you got to understand education is, it only works if you have somebody who's healthy enough to get educated. And then if you have somebody who's healthy enough to get educated and you can graduate them and then they become a really productive member of the workforce, we're making strides. I always tell people, if you really want to reform Medicaid, you really need to reform education, and you need to start doing things that's actually going to lower the amount of people in poverty in the state of Oklahoma. I, I think that's great. I don't, have, I don't have a better answer than that. I think we yeah, should. Yeah, I, I don't either. I think Nico makes a lot of great points, and, and we have uh, three fun months ahead of us where the legislature is going to uh, work with the governor to come up with the answer to those questions. Yeah. I like it. The only, I can answer my own question, a, a small soapbox. Uh, Nico, you mentioned pregnant mothers, uh, dental care earlier. Um, I think oral health care is, is not really in the conversation right now on a statewide political level, and it's hugely tied to a lot of things. It's tied heavily to uh, prenatal care. It's mm-hmm. tied heavily to pediatric care. Um, it, dental cavities are caused by bacteria. That means it's preventable. If we keep our teeth healthy, if we take kids to the dentist for their annual, biannual uh, hygiene visits, we can make a big difference. You can keep your teeth. We can break that cycle of, of toothlessness in, in Oklahoma. But we don't have that robust discussion, and we don't really have the resources uh, you know, to, to really make a, a big din in that. So that's my, my tiny little soapbox. Nico. Always a pleasure. Thank Thank, you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You know, Trace, it's it's only fair. Alex lit into the last podcast with a rap from Eminem. Nico is a few years older than Alex, so he really should in some some in this this podcast with something from like what Def Leppard? <laughs> what do you think? White Snake? Something from our generation? Really? Man. Maybe you got to do something like that. Maybe right? a dirty limerick. Yeah, what do you got? Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm sorry. You got I, nothing? I, yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. For you. I, I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. <laughs> well, on that note. Um, well, Nico, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Brian, Spencer, uh, always a pleasure. Hopefully this goes on long enough and is so successful that we get to have you back on here. Love to be, love to do it. Absolutely. I, I, would, I would encourage everybody to rate the podcast and uh, share it around as much as humanly possible and review us, uh, subscribe, all those type of things that, that helps us uh, get our message out to as many people as possible. As long, as long as we're rated higher than the doorman wins, and you, I mean, that's, that's my goal. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. How We Got Here is a presentation of FKG Consulting in association with Nondoc.com, produced and edited by Bryce Holland. For more information, visit fkgconsulting.com and nondoc.com.